Welcome to Brainstorm by Us Against Alzheimer's, a patient-centered nonprofit organization. Your host, Meryl Comer, is a co-founder, 24-year caregiver, an Emmy Award-winning journalist, and the author of the New York Times bestseller, Slow Dancing with a Stranger. This is Brainstorm, and I'm Meryl Comer. Joining us is award-winning, internationally acclaimed novelist Amy Bloom. Her latest nonfiction, In Love, a memoir of love and loss, is a New York Times bestseller that maps her personal journey with her husband, Brian Amici, into Alzheimer's. In our last conversation, Amy and I explored the issues of getting to a diagnosis. Today, we probe how together they honored his decision to end his life. Amy, thank you again for joining us. In your book, you write that each of the methods to end one's life comes with its own risk and legal ramifications. Can you walk us through the options? Oh, sure. I mean, we ran through everything. I've been talking about Brian's situation to a good friend, and she said, oh my gosh, my neighbor, whom I love, who was 78, had terminal cancer, and this was her third bout of cancer, and she just wasn't having it, and she put rocks in her pocket like Virginia Woolf and walked into the Connecticut River, which ran through her backyard. And I thought, oh, I guess that's a thing that people can do. Unfortunately, I told Brian about it and he was like, no, so cold. So that was not an option. You know, we look through everything. You know, there's nothing legal available in the United States period if you have dementia. I mean, you can barely take advantage of the 10 right to die states if you don't have dementia, because you can still only have six months left to live with two physicians who will attest that you only have six months left to live in your terminal illness and that you have the cognitive wherewithal to make this decision and go through two interviews and write an essay and wait for the two-week approval period. Oh, this is, by the way, after you've become a resident of this new state, which you didn't live in before, and then a physician will write a prescription for you and then you can end your life. And I think it's not surprising that the real function of these laws is not to relieve human suffering, but to make sure that as few people as possible take advantage of it. In that, they have been really successful. The numbers are very, very low. What Dignitas offers and what we came to eventually, something that was painless and peaceful and legal, and the only things wrong with it was that it was in Switzerland and it was expensive. But Painless, peaceful, and legal really appealed to both of us, and that is what we did, and that is absolutely what they delivered. It's very supportive, it's very kind, it's also very clear that, you know, they are very open to people changing their minds. They must have said to us 50 times, are you sure? Is this what you want to do, Mr. Amici? If you change your mind, please let us know. You can change your mind at the very last minute. We will be 100% supportive. Would you recommend that such an organization exist in the United States? Well, you know, only if we would like to improve the quality of people's lives. But if the goal is to make sure that nobody can make a choice about their end of life, we should definitely keep doing what we're doing. What about your own jeopardy, whether assisting in any way, helping your husband to end his life? Were you in jeopardy? I would have been in jeopardy in the United States if I had assisted him in any way. I mean, it is still not rare for people to have charges brought against them. I mean, you see it from time to time, you know, often a 
small town, but not always, you know, that one of the partners has had a terminal illness and been in terrible pain, and the other partner has facilitated the end of their life with their permission, and they will still be prosecuted. Now, the chances are pretty good they're not going to be sent to jail if there's no suggestion that they have benefited in any way from the death. But still, probably losing your ill spouse of 50 years and then being prosecuted for the crime of helping him or her die peacefully seems not to be what we should be doing with our laws and with our police. What did your lawyers advise in terms of getting your papers in order, covering yourself for the future? There really wasn't a lot required. I mean, Brian had already written an essay for Dignitas about his life and his decision. And so we had a copy of that. And he also wrote a statement about how important it was to him to go to Dignitas. And that was his choice. But there's nothing illegal about going to Dignitas. It's in Switzerland. So there's nothing illegal about flying to Switzerland. At age 66, your husband would legally, peacefully, and painlessly end his own life. Few friends or colleagues knew about the decision and plan until it was over. How did they react? I really made a decision to the best of my ability to forgive everybody. I just felt that's the way I got to go. I thought to myself, I have done plenty of stupid, selfish, careless things in my life, and I am sure I have made more stupid, selfish, and careless remarks than I would want to remember. And my job? is to forgive everybody. So yeah, some people were really wonderful and supportive and tactful and understood that their grief was not central to me or to Brian. And some people were a little more self-absorbed and some people were fairly offensive and utterly useless. And I just decided to let all that go. Amy, as Alzheimer's families and advocates, We encourage those on the journey to tell and write their stories as a way to break through the stigma of the disease. Can you also recommend it as a cathartic to the pain of loss? I think it depends on your nature. I did not find it terribly cathartic, but I am a writer by profession. And so once Brian wanted me to write about it, I was beginning to think about how to write about it. I think if you're not a writer, certainly what you put in your journal, how you think about it, also your own capacity to talk about it. I mean, people, it seems to me, Alzheimer's caregivers are encouraged to be sort of relentlessly cheerful and at most sort of mildly melancholy. This is a terrible disease and it destroys people. I would encourage people to be as expressive as they need to be and also to ask for as much help as they can bring themselves to ask for. It's just wearing, you know, it's just tiring. And no matter what a superhero you are, it's going to be hard. And so I would say, if you are friends with people who have Alzheimer's in their family, please don't say, give me a call if there's anything I can do. You can do better. And what you can do is drop off the casserole at four o'clock with notes on when it should be reheated and if it can be frozen. What you should do is call at noon and say, I have the whole afternoon free. I can either go grocery shopping or I can come and walk your dog. Would either of those things be useful? Have you noticed that caregivers tend to be stoic? I mean, the majority of caregivers tend to be women. So were they trained to be stoic and sort of just push through, even if it 
is at some level endangering their own health and well-being. I don't think you have to take care of somebody with Alzheimer's to be a woman who pushes on at the risk of her own health. I think that's quite common, especially in middle age and older. But I also think that we raise women not to complain very much and to be happy to take care of somebody and be happy to accommodate them and look on the bright spots, all of which I think is fine. But there has to be room for the dark as well as the light. And there has to be room to talk about the grief. Can we talk about the grief and your trip home from Dignitas in Switzerland? Sure. I came home. I spent a fair amount of time in the Zurich airport looking at people and being very angry that they were alive and Brian was dead. I think along with grief, there's quite a bit of anger for those of us who experience these losses. And then I got home and my younger daughter picked me up at the airport. My older daughter was waiting for us at my house when we got back. My son was texting me the whole time. And I had really (laughs) fantasized that I would just crawl into bed in sort of a deep Russian depression and be left alone for several weeks. But, you know, as they say, man plans, God laughs. So a couple of weeks later, having not succeeded in crawling into bed and pulling the blankets up over my head entirely, my younger daughter called from Brooklyn and she said, mommy, they've closed daycare. There are no babysitters. There is no childcare. And my wife and I both have to work full time from home. And I said, get in the car. And so they got in the car, their little clown car from Brooklyn. And they came and stayed with me for the next five months, which turns out for me, for my temperament to have been an enormous gift. It turns out that even though I found life very painful and I was very delicate and thin-skinned, I mean, you looked at me the wrong way, I would burst into tears. You spoke to me the wrong way, I would think about punching you in the face. But to have this kind of life and my family with me and, you know, spending every morning taking care of my granddaughter and then going off to work actually to write this book turned out to have been exactly what I needed. And so I think part of what I would say to people about grief and loss, it's not one size fits all. You got to know what your own nature is. And if you need to pull up in the house and turn on Netflix and drink a lot of herbal tea, then that's what you need to do. And if you need to meditate, that's great. And if you need to watch old movies, that's fine too. And you need to dig up a garden, it doesn't matter. You don't get any extra points for doing it the way somebody else thinks you should do it. It only matters that you can feel a tiny bit better in the morning than you do it at night. As Heller McAlpin of NPR wrote in his review, the question overshadowing this memoir is how far you'd be willing to go for the one you love. Would you agree to help your beloved end their life if he or she received a hopeless diagnosis? Do you think he nailed it or no? That seems to me a good interpretation. You know, I don't read my reviews, so I don't have a lot of standard responses to them. Yes, that seems like a good interpretation. The book seems to me to be about love and grief and sort of significant issues about choice in in one's life, how you live and how you die. So that certainly seems like a fair interpretation. Do you think this experience has brought out the advocate in you? Well, the advocate in me is never far below the surface, but I am aware that I'm not at this point in my life going to 
spend most of my time advocating for changes in right to die laws. I am very supportive of people who do. I've been contacted by a lot of organizations. I am very happy to express my support. But right now, for me, the thing I need to do next is probably work on a novel rather than do a lot of advocacy. But certainly when people call me, I mean, I've had people call or email me and say, could you answer a few questions? And most of the time I say, I think I've answered it in the book, but occasionally somebody will say, oh, I have this question and I'm happy to answer it. I think that these are really hard things to talk about and being vague or abstract about it is of no help to anybody. Our guest has been Amy Bloom. Her book, In Love, a memoir of love and loss. That's it for this edition of Brainstorm. I'm Errol Comer. Thank you for joining us. Us Against Alzheimer's A-List is an online community where people living with dementia, their caregivers, and anyone interested in brain health come together to share their insights. We call it the science of us. Join more than 10,000 A-List members making what matters most heard. Sign up at alistforresearch.org. That's A-List, the number four, research.org. Support for Brainstorm by Us Against Alzheimer's comes from Karen and Chris Siegel. Subscribe to Brainstorm through your favorite podcast platform and join us for new episodes on the first and third Tuesday of every month.